Jays. One ball, two strikes. This is amazing. What a feat by this guy. Eight consecutive strikeouts. Former MLB starter turned Cubs TV analyst. That is a fun factoid. More importantly, a fortune teller. KB hasn't hit a home run yet since he's come off of the save and it's going deep right here. It's been a pleasure knowing y'all. My career is over. It's Jim Deshays with Matt Spiegel on Hit and Run. That was a great moment in the broadcasting career of one Jim Deshays. It is Hit and Run Sunday mornings on The Score with me, Matt Spiegel. I'm your host. Every week we have a different guest co-host and Jim Deshays joins us right now. Good morning, J.D. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I've just got a little last-minute Christmas shopping to finish up. And uh, other than that, I'm doing great. <laughs> right, exactly. You've got to be freaking kidding me, man. <laughs> it is absurd, isn't it? I know. Well, you're saved a trip to the ballpark. I'm saved a trip to Smoke Daddy where they were going to feed me with barbecue. Oh. oh, wait a minute. I'm not saved a trip. That's terrible. What the hell happened? <laughs> But yeah, we were going to be hanging out over there, and now it's it's snowing. I guess this was the right thing to do to cancel it as early as possible today, but creates an issue, doesn't it, for a team on the West Coast who is not going to be back in town until September, and we already looked. There's like no off days, at least down the road, that uh, look like they fit. This creates some possible awkwardness. Yeah, somebody said yesterday there was maybe a, a date in August where the uh, Angels might have to fly up here and, and before they head somewhere in somewhat proximity to Chicago. Mm. I was looking, I, I have a novel idea. Uh, the first weekend in September, Angels come here, we play them at Wrigley like at 10 in the morning, <laughs> and then we bus to Milwaukee for the night game while the Angels take the L train to the south side to play the Sox. Did you, we so- have this whole baseball bonanza of uh, Split double headers with multiple teams. We, we had a caller uh, 45 minutes ago who had the exact same thought, Jim. <laughs> I don't know. If, if, is there anybody else in the house? The call is coming from inside the house <laughs> because that's, that's a great idea. I like it. Yeah, I, I, you know, in, in a perfect world, we would be home, right? And the Angels come in here and play, you know, a, a day game at, at Wrigley and a night game over there, and then we play, you know, a night game against whoever would be on our schedule. But we are yeah, we're in Milwaukee, so yeah. obviously that's not going to happen. It does create uh, some awkwardness, but clearly um, you can't play baseball today. And I know MLB and, and all the clubs have really pushed hard in recent years to uh, to play kind of, quote-unquote, no matter what. But um, it gets to the point where it just becomes absurd. Yeah, uh, understandably, a year ago today was absurd, brutal weather when they came back against the Atlanta Braves in one of the more memorable rallies uh, of, of last year, certainly at, at Wrigley Field. So this is a tradition, April 14th, horrific weather at Wrigley, whether they play or not. Yeah, yeah. So be careful when you order your tickets for next season. <laughs> or maybe the 14th, you know, it just can't ha- possibly happen again, so maybe that's the date you target. Yeah. Uh, this hour of Hit and Run is brought to you by Team Hockberg. Visit their new website, 56david.com. That's 56david.com. Looking forward to talking with you, Jim. Um, and, and we can do a bunch of stuff and not just the current Cubs, but let's let's start with yesterday. Is there is there something funky between uh, Kyle and Joe? Like, I, I always wonder, so, because Joe kind of pulls Kyle earlier than I think he needs to sometimes. Yesterday, I know the bullpen is rested um, after Hamels and Quintana gave 
gave everything, but just because they're rested doesn't mean you got to use them. 87 pitches from Kyle. And then afterwards, Joe said, you know, Kyle wasn't very good today, which was a level of bluntness that would not go over well with, say, John Lester or John Lackey or, or some other guys. Yeah, uh, no, I don't think there's anything funky there. I, I think he just knows that Kyle is, is not going to wilt under a little criticism or Kyle's not going to get too upset if he gets removed from a game. Mm. Um, you know, I think maybe early in his career, there was some of that where, you know, I think sometimes for a manager it's hard not to, or it's hard to trust guys who don't have plus plus stuff, and so you're kind of anxious to make that move when you get them through five or six innings. But I think I think Hendricks and Joe's mind has moved beyond that. I think Joe has a lot of confidence in Kyle. Kyle's just not Kyle right now. I mean, when you look at, um, you know, the quality of contact he's given up, uh, the fact that there's been so many balls in the air and not on the ground, um, that's not that's not Hendricks when he's at his best. It's um, soft contact, a lot of balls on the ground, and, and right now he's just searching. And I, I feel like Joe just felt like you know he got out of him what he could yesterday, and it was it was time to to move on to what had been uh, over the course of the past few games uh, a bullpen that was trending in the right direction. But you know clearly yesterday that was not the case. Yeah, eighteen and two thirds scoreless before yesterday with the seven walks. It's uh, interesting to hear you talk about about Kyle. Um, in conversation with him. He has said that, you know, obviously fastball command has to be there, but it's also like it, it's, it's the pitch tunnels for him. Like the one fastball has to look exactly like one of those change-ups and the other fastball has to look exactly like the other one of those change-ups. I, I don't know if you can tell or if he's spoken about what exactly is going wrong. What, what are you seeing? I'm just seeing, you know, more balls in the middle of the strike zone than, than you normally see from Kyle. And I think it's probably like a golfer who sets up to hit a draw and, and the ball just strains out on him. I think that's what's happening with Kyle. And, uh, you know, I haven't spoken to him about it, but my sense is, you know, he feels like his release point is is in a pretty good shape where he's anticipating getting this kind of sink or run on the ball and it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure exactly why, but, he's, you know, he's such a feel guy. But um, I, I just don't think he's getting the, the movement, the consistent movement on his fastball. And so, you know, he's leaving a number of them in the middle of the strike zone. Um, you know, I, I, he had a, there was a point yesterday where he just went heavy changeup because I think that was the pitch he had the most confidence in that he could execute. Um, so he's searching, and he goes through this. You know, it seems like every year he goes through a little, you know, mini slump. Um, you know, and sometimes the results aren't bad, but, but he'll tell you that uh, his you know his location wasn't good, and he got away with it. Right now, he's not getting away with it. Mm. Um, but I trust his ability to fix it. You know, he's he's really good at kind of figuring things out on his own. You know, um, after Thursday when Quintana was brilliant, uh, Joe said, "You know, yes, an outing like this can be contagious. Let's hope so." And then the next day, Hamels was brilliant, and I I started to think about, all right, look, I've heard this forever in my life. I've seen it happen where like. You know, it seems like one good starter gets going and then it inspires the other guys. And I was trying to figure out why. The best I could come up with was that Quintana was using everything, including that changeup, a lot more on Thursday. And then on Friday, Hamels came out and he used everything. He used his changeup a lot more than he had the first couple times. Is, is, is that something one starter will notice when it goes well for the other? Like, oh, he's using everything and executing. And if I do that, maybe I can get some results. Does it- Possibly. I, I think mostly I don't believe in that. I don't believe. like, even, And I don't know the pitcher. I'm sure I said it when I was a pitcher. <laughs> yeah, I just want to, you know, my, the guy in front of me did well, I'm, so I'm inspired to do well. I, I think that's just, that's just baseball speak. I, I, do, I just don't believe it. I don't believe that good starts are contagious. I don't mind <laughs> the hitting is contagious. Um, Sometimes back-to-back good starts come because you're facing a bad team or a team that, you know, in this instance it was two good left-handers and the Angels were hitting 
against small sample, but they were hitting a buck seventy two against left handed pitching coming into that game. So those were fairly predictable outcomes. Um and both guys were on their game. So you take two veteran pitchers who know how to pitch that are on their game against uh, a Mike Troutless Angels team who have really struggled against left-handed pitching. So I think that's more the explanation than the contagious thing. Um, mm. But it's just that's something as pitchers we just say and hitters say it too. You know, I guy ahead of me got a hit, so I'm you know I felt great and I got a hit. And I I, <clears throat> I think contagious hitting is probably more a case of bad pitching on the other side. Uh. Um, my boy, but, but just, yeah, but I, you know, I, so I you're taking all the joy out of my magical <laughs> thinking, Deshays. <laughs> you know, talk to Bob Tewksbury. Talk, you know, maybe there's, you know, more of a mental skills guy that would prove me wrong. But <laughs> after watching it and being part of this thing for about 30 years, I just feel like, you know, some of the stuff that we we, we say and do as players, uh-huh. we don't necessarily believe. It's just it's the right thing to say or feels like the right thing to say. All right, I'm done with you. Let's get Tewksbury. <laughs> Let's get Tewksbury on here. Tewksbury. <laughs> think of it logically. If, if you're Cole Hamels and you're watching Quintana, are you really uh-huh. going, oh, man, I'm going to go out there tomorrow. I'm fired up now. <laughs> Cole Hamels is a great pitcher. He's going to go out there and try to do you know, as well as he can do no matter what the circumstances are. I have seen I have seen musicians rise to the occasion when they see an awesome guitar player play an awesome solo. They're like, you know what? When it's my turn, I'm going to rise up. And you elevate, <laughs> the, you elevate to the nature of your cohorts. I've seen it happen, okay. pal. All right. That, that's, that is a solid theory. That's a solid theory. I think we got... I think we have a, a debate. I think we can we can make this work. All right, get Tewksbury online too. Uh, Bob Tewksbury, who is a part of the mental skills program and was the mental skills coordinator in Boston uh, for a while, and was a tremendous pitcher to watch. God, I loved watching him when he was in Minnesota for those 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 great years. And wrote a book. He wrote a book on uh, on the mental part of pitching that I know. Um, that I know a lot of people have used. As of, and uh, aren't you having Scott Miller on later today? Yes, sir. He he co-wrote it with with Tukes. There and, is. And uh, yeah, Tukes and I go way back. We were we were minor league teammates together in the in the Yankee organization uh, many 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 years ago. Yeah, he was a real craftsman out there. Wow. So there it is. Yeah. So the the career of Jim Deshays is not just those years in Houston, which is what I always think about. I always think of you as an Astro, five years as a rotation guy with more than. 25 starts a year in Houston. Um, but, yeah, you so see, you came up a Yankee. Sure, Tewksbury also was in that system. Eventually, you were traded for Joe Necro. I, I, love, I love that. And I wonder if they – did they throw in the Emery board as well? Did that go along with Joe in the no, trade? No, it, uh, it was me and a couple other minor leaguers for Joe. And uh, Joe was wildly popular in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and my introduction to Houston, I, I got into a cab when I landed at the airport. And there's a newspaper on the, in the seat of the, the back seat of the cab, and I, I pulled out the sports page, and the, the lead column, the lead of the you know the main column, was the uh, uh, Astros have traded their heart and soul, and in return got a couple of chest hairs and fingernail clippings, and that, that was my welcome to Houston moment. <laughs> so, boy. Which were you? Did you decide? Did I, you... I don't know. I, I like to think I was a chest hair. Um, <laughs> that is more muscular, yeah, theoretically. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess. The first time I got up in the bullpen, somebody was screaming at me, you better have a knuckleball. Oh. <laughs> wow. That's that's an ugly introduction right there. So so you never – did you – I, I got I to gotta look. You didn't get to pitch at Yankee. I did. Right? I debuted at the Yankees. I made a couple starts for them. Okay. Uh, I was called up in 84. Uh, made my first start uh, at the stadium, part of a, a, a doubleheader with the White Sox, as a matter of fact. Wow. 
And then uh, I made one more start in Cleveland that, that did not go well, got sent down. And the next year, I was in AAA most of the year. Got called up at the end of the year, just hung out in the bullpen until I got traded over to Houston. There it is. When I was looking through the baseball reference page for Jim Deshays, I spent a lot of time towards the end trying to remember what happened after Houston, where it was San Diego for a little while, um, Minnesota, um, and then San Francisco, and then back to Minnesota, and then Philly. So that's it's a lot of bouncing around as you tried to figure out whether you were officially done or not. Yeah, yeah, you get into that nomadic phase of your career. Um, and, you know, Houston was going through a rebuild, and they kind of unloaded just about everybody who had been the, the core of a pretty good team in the you know the mid-'80s. We, mm-hmm. we played the Mets in the 86 playoffs, and we had some decent teams towards the end of the decade. And then uh, just about everybody I'd played with was, was gone, and they were moving on. They were, you know, moving into the Biggio, Bagwell, Luis Gonzalez, Steve Finley group. Um, so yeah, I was a free agent. I went to camp with Oakland. Didn't make the club. Became you know kind of a scrambled to find a job with Padres. Pitched pretty well for them. Second half of '92, signed with the Twins. Had a decent year in '93. Was the worst pitcher on the planet in '94. Um, and then we had the you know the lockout strike combo in '94, '95. And yeah, yeah, just kind of trying to hang on by my fingernails. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny, Ed Wade. Um, He's the guy that released me when I was with the Phillies, and I'd gone back and pitched Triple A in Scranton for most of that year, and then I got called up, made two starts, the last of which was at Wrigley, mm-hmm. and uh, got my brains beat in. And and then years later, when Ed was our GM in Houston while I was broadcasting, I I made some crack to him about, yeah, you're the guy that fired me. He goes, hey man, I did you a favor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and maybe he wasn't wrong at yeah, that time. Sometimes you need to hear the brutal truth. Yeah, I, that last start at Wrigley, July 1995, the last start of Jim Deshaies' major league career, um, was reading a hot day at Wrigley. You got four outs that day, a couple of strikeouts, um, six runs. But I mean, did, did you know? Did, did you know at that point? But boy, I'd, well, I yeah, think this I knew, might be I knew, it. You know. I, Jimmy Fergosi was the manager, and uh, just a wonderful character, a great guy. But he, he, you know, he didn't believe in me from the, the, the get-go. And, and what happened was, I, when I was in AAA, I had an out clause where if somebody else offered me a chance to, you know, to leave, I could. But the Phillies had right of first refusal, so the Reds called my agent and they wanted to sign me. Or, and uh, the Phillies said, "Well, you know, we've invested. I don't know." Four thousand dollars, whatever they invested in me pitching AAA that summer. So we'll call him up. But hmm. you know, I don't. Jimmy didn't want any part of me. He, he liked you know, velocity guys. He thought I was done. So I made the one start at home against the Rockies, I guess it was, and then the start at Wrigley. So I kind of knew that if it didn't go well, I was probably going to be released. Which uh, Tooks and others would tell you that's probably not the best mental approach. <laughs> um, and then uh, we're sitting at the the Hyatt on Wacker and. Um, there was a walkway between the two towers, and I looked out, and I could see the, the heat rising off the, the street. There was a drought that summer in the Midwest. It was like 100-and-some-odd degrees, at least. That's what it felt like. So I knew the wind would be blowing out. I was a fly ball pitcher, and I, my thought was, this is going to be the last start of your major league career. <laughs> I, said, I just knew it was not going to go well, and I knew I didn't have the stomach to, you know, to, to, to push through. So it was kind of a, a weird feeling. Hmm. But at least I was a good scout. At least I could predict the outcome. Yeah. But it's so interesting. That it's forever interesting to me that ball players and athletes at that point in their lives, you know, in your, your mid-30s, you got to make a decision like that. 
and realize that the rest of your life looms and some people have plans, some people don't. I was just reading about it the other day um, in The Athletic. There was a piece about, you know, some guys are still like watching games these days going, man, I'm better than him. Mm-hmm. I could still do yeah. that. Was that the Middlebrooks article? Yes. I yes. Yeah. Yeah. I read that. It was a really good piece. Um, and I can't recall who wrote it, but. Uh, here she really captured the the mindset of a, of a re- retired player. Yes, and and, and it, it kind of that that mentality stays with you a long time, and it, it, it little by little it leaks away. Um, but I can tell you, man, I, I still have dreams where you know I'm supposed to be pitching and I can't find my spikes. You know, just those those weird you're freaking out and it's time to go to the bullpen. Mm. I, mean, I mean, the the game gets into your your blood and it it just it stays there forever. Um, and you, at times, when, you, when you're first out, it feels like, wait a minute, how come I'm not? You know, the first spring training you don't go is a real weird feeling. It's like hmm. uh, it's like you're in junior high school and everybody's been invited to the party, but you and you're like, why not me? Wow. You know, what, what did I do wrong to the popular kids? Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll tweet it out. It's Brittany Garoli on The Athletic. It's almost like a part of you dies. Retired players on hard choices in life after baseball. And what I think Cub fans might find fascinating in there is that Mark Pryor is quoted, and he was one of the rare ones who got clarity. Like, he feels okay, because in 2013, he had clawed his way back, and some people remember, clawed his way back and got to AAA and was like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it one more shot. And he realized, nope, don't have it. Okay. And for some reason, that was enough to give him a peace of mind. The the, the fact that he made another run at it, uh, for sure. And then the other part, I think there's... Um, as weird as it may sound, I think guys who suffer career-ending injuries, yeah, um, it's a little bit easier because there's no choice, there's no doubt, there's no should I've tried again, should I've gone back, uh, gone to minor league camp, tried to fight my way back, uh, you know, learn a new pitch, drop down, throw sidearm. I mean, I I had those thoughts for years hmm. um, when I first got out of the game. Um, you know, I would in the first couple of years of broadcasting in Houston, I would. You know, in the off season, I would go throw a bunch of balls against a fence to see if I could, you know, do something that I hadn't done before with the eye towards possibly making a comeback. Well, that's interesting. I remember Zach Duke, when he uh, his career fell apart in Pittsburgh, he decided to try being a submariner. And then mm-hmm. all, of, all of a sudden he came back and had an entire another chapter to his career. Were you doing that? Were you, like, trying to throw different ways? Yeah, I was dropping my arm angle a little bit. I wasn't going as drastic as submarine. But, you know, I was always a guy who's, who I threw a four-seam fastball. It was kind of sneaky, but it was pretty true. I didn't have sink and – so I thought, well, maybe if I can create all kinds of different movement, I can I can survive with my, you know, 83 mile an hour fastball. And you know, you watch a guy like Jamie Moyer mm-hmm. um, push through and, and resurrect his career, and that kind of becomes the role model. You think, well, wow, look what he did. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's it's, a, it's an interesting. Um, process that you have to go through this portion of the show being brought to you by the bmw championship at medina country club august 13th through august 18th 2019 visit bmwchampionship.com all right jim you can watch the masters for a few minutes here as we'll take a break and uh the 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 the, they're all out there they're all out there playing um phone callers are on the line to talk to jim deshays i'm looking forward to that 312-644-6767 i want to talk to jd about some of the hall of famers he played with along the way there are several of them. We'll do that next on 670 The Score. And that'll be four in a row as he strikes out Wally Backman for the second time today. That's 11 strikeouts in the ball game for Nolan Ryan in the Astrodome. Swing and a foul tip held by Ashby and that's strikeout number 12 for Nolan Ryan. Oh, nothing. 
Keith Jackson doing baseball. Yes, sir. That's the 1986 NLCS. And what a series it was. Tremendous playoffs that year on both the American League and the National League front. Nolan Ryan struck out 12 in that game. It went 12 innings. The Astros lost it 2-1. to one. And then the Astros lost to the Mets in game six. In That was the game that was 16 innings, right, Jim Deshays? Sorry to bring back all the memories, but with Jesse Roscoe throwing the glove up in the air after he had uh, sh- uh, closed it down at the end. Jim Deshays is our guest co-host right here on 670 The Score. J.D., we just played uh, Nolan Ryan striking out 12 from Game 5 of the 86 NLCS. Um, you were a young man there in that series. Did you figure, ah, no big deal, we'll get back. Absolutely, we'll get back. yeah. Right? It was my first full year in the big leagues. It was a crushing defeat. Um, I was supposed to start, I think, it was, I think it was Game 5, but we got rained out, so they were able to come back with Nolan, so I never pitched in the series. Mm. Um yeah, and at the time, you know, you're young and dumb, and you're thinking, well, we'll get back. I'll get my chance. We'll win this thing, and uh, never did, so. Well, yeah, and, and, and the specter that hung over that game six that went 16, 16 innings is that Mike Scott would have thrown in game seven. Yeah, right? and, and Scott ended up being the MVP of the series, despite the fact that we lost. That's how good he was. He pitched two shutdown games against the Mets, and, uh, you know, the general thinking was um, – <laughs> that he would dominate them again sure. in Game Seven. He, you know, he, you know, he, he, talking to him about it um, after the fact. He's like, I'm, I'm not convinced I would have, you know, been that good for a third straight game. But uh, I'm sure it would have been fun to watch and and see him have a that, that game was epic. Yeah, Billy Hatcher hit the uh, the home run to tie it in the 14th. Uh, we had a couple guys on base. We had scored to make it seven to six. I believe was the final. We had two guys in scoring position when Roscoe struck out. Uh, Kevin Bast in the ball game. It was just, uh, you know, uh, books have been written about that game. It was yeah. one of the, the greatest games ever played. Yeah, and meanwhile, uh, the American League Championship Series is the one where Dave Henderson hits a home run off of Donnie Moore, and the Red Sox and the A's play an absolute epic of a series. And then, oh, by the way, the World Series was was uh, outrageously memorable with uh, with the Mets and, 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 and Billy Buckner and Mookie Wilson and, and, and all of that. Um, in that series, though, uh, Davey Johnson very famously had a press conference in New York. I think he had what ten different baseballs, twelve, twelve different baseballs, and he's and he's holding them. He's holding all the baseballs up, and he's saying to everybody, "Look at these. These all have a scuff in the exact same place." I was reading it. He said it was the size of a half dollar. Now, does that mean it was that round? Like, how do you scuff a baseball theoretically, Jim Deshays, in a round circle like a half dollar? Well, theoretically, if you were to have a small piece piece of sandpaper cut in the shape of a circle, say, uh-huh. and glue it to your hand um, in an inconspicuous way, or in a conspicuous way, uh-huh. um, you might be able to buff the ball a little bit and create a kind of a circular a little uh, fluff or design. Um, not that circles are prefer- preferable to any other kind of scratches on a baseball, but... Um, that, that may be what he was alluding to, the circular design. But, you know, there's all different ways to cut a baseball. Um, you know, some guys use sandpapers. Other guys would use the little, uh, you know, little metal thing on their glove that, that the laces would go through. Hmm. Um, some guys would, I've heard stories of guys using thumbtacks 
that they would uh, attach to a lace that you could retract, pull down, so it would be hidden in your glove. Wow. Yeah, yeah, the, the level of chicanery that has gone on in the history of our fine game is pretty interesting. Do you think stuff like that still goes on? I know we have the, uh, was it the, the frog, whatever it's called, the, 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 the spray, like the, the sticky spray that people put on their arms, and it's just really just to give them a better grip. Um, that, you know, it, and people use similar to sort of pine tar, some pitchers use. But do you think anybody cuts a baseball? I don't know if you can get away with it anymore. Um, I, I would guess there's probably some guys that are out there doing something like that, I don't, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think more guys are using some combination of pine tar or some other substances. Uh, some guys, you know, it seems like every team has a guy who's like a mad scientist who's <laughs> experimenting with different things to try to, uh, improve uh, improve uh, grip on the ball, and uh, I think it's a bit of a misnomer. And, and pitchers, you know, one will say everybody's doing it, and that's not true. Not everybody's doing it. Um, there's probably guys on every team that is doing it, yeah. and uh, I think there is valid reasons to use it um, to improve grip. But it does it, it gives you an advantage. It, it clearly does. Uh, Trevor Bauer has made some, and I know he's kind of an out there guy, but he's made some. I think very. Um, interesting uh, comments about spin rate and, and uh-huh. how you know with with if you can spin the four seam fastball and it rotates more it's, it's going to stay on plane it's going to have it's going to be more lively it's going to create more swing and miss and and same thing with the action on the breaking ball pitchers will defend themselves by saying well it's cold and we're just doing this because we lose control of the ball and we don't want to hurt anybody and and hitters for the most part buy into that they go yeah it's fine you know our, their guys do it our guys do it which if everybody is okay with it, then I'm fine. Um, but don't tell me it doesn't create a, a big advantage. Um, back in the day, before people were putting pine tar on their hands, it wasn't like we had a rash of people getting hit in the head with fastballs on cold weather days. So the argument that, well, it's really cold and we're just doing this because we don't want to hurt anybody yeah. is, is bunk. Yeah, bullfrog sunscreen is the stuff that I was trying to remember the name of that a lot of pitchers use. Bauer, I think, was talking about the Houston Astros at the time where all of a sudden, hey, Charlie Morton's having the best year of his career. How did he get that good stuff? Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, and it's, and it's really interesting you know, because the science of baseball has exploded and they're able to study all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and if you come up with... Um, something that allows you to, to get more spin on a four-seam fastball or tighter spin on your curveball, yeah. it's going to be a big advantage. Yeah, the guy the guy who's down there right now, a part of that front office in Houston, is Kevin Goldstein. And I, I remember I was once talking to Kevin about pitchers because my nephew was pitching at Oak Park and and he was really good, but just couldn't you know couldn't get some some additional heat on the ball. And I'm like, can you build velocity? Can you build velocity? At the time, he said, yes, you can. Um, and I was like, really? Because I'd always heard that you can't. But these days, with driveline baseball and stuff, these little academies, they send guys there and they come back and have added velocity. How are they doing it? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've read a little bit about driveline and some of these other places. One, there's a lot of conditioning that's going on. I know they're doing work with weighted balls. They're doing a lot of different uh, throwing drills. Uh, you see those clips of guys crow hopping and throwing the ball 110 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you've seen Bauer and other guys do it. And, you know, when we were coming up as pitchers, if you saw somebody doing that, you said, this is, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. You're going to blow out. Um, but, but clearly they have um, different thoughts on it, and it, it appears to work. Um, and I also think, too, with the, the cameras they're using and, and the, the ability to break down, you know, frame by frame and, 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 and microseconds, and, you know, if there's an advantage if you can – get a little more extension and release the ball a little bit further out in front. Mm. Uh, one, you're going to be a little bit closer to your target. And, 
you know, you, you can probably add a little velocity that way. So I think it's mostly just um, newer conditioning and training and throwing programs, but I think there is some science, too, in terms of release point, delivery, th- things of that nature. So when you were in Houston and, and Nolan Ryan is there and you're on a pitching rotation with Nolan Ryan, I, 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 you know, people say, like, certain arms are just God-given, and it's just like that guy with all those bullets in that arm and never really had major troubles and arm surgery. Do you – was it God-given, or did you see stuff in his work ethic that you still think about? It was both. Um you know, he obviously was blessed with a great arm as a young guy, but to be able to pitch at such a high level for so long speaks to how well he took care of himself. I mean, this is this is a guy that didn't run at night. Uh, you know, he always maintained uh, he was in great shape, and no body fat, uh, always running, climbing stairs. You know, he kind of bought into lift weight, uh, weightlifting, excuse me, mm-hmm. a little bit earlier uh, than most, certainly than most pitchers. So, you know, he'd be back in the weight room. I don't think he was doing heavy, heavy stuff, but but he was lifting between starts at a time when nobody else was. Um, so, yeah, he, he, and he was, you know, um, kind yeah. of advanced in his thinking that way. Uh, and, and, you know, baseball now is doing a lot of work with biomechanics, and, I, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if Nolan Ryan isn't isn't the perfect model for what you would look for if you were scouting an amateur looking for a pitcher, just his height, his weight, um, the width of his shoulders, all, all that. You know, I think everything about him said this this is the prototypical power pitcher hmm. should look like. It's interesting. Yeah, so so you play with Ryan, who's before his time with some of the weightlifting, and that makes sense. You also played with Tony Gwynn, and I don't know how how memorable that was. I know you, you were scuffling a little bit. You said trying, just trying to make the Padres, but Gwynn was an early adopter of watching film. I, I, I saw a piece on an old This Week in Baseball, as a matter of fact, where Tony Gwynn is like breaking down videotape and explaining this is how you look at videotape. And there just there weren't that many people even even doing that. Did you do, do you uh, any any memories of playing with Gwynn and, and realizing what kind of a special hitter and learner he was? Yeah, you know, I, probably more from playing against him because he was such a tough out. Um, there was just nowhere to nowhere to pitch him that you felt like he wasn't going to hit it hard somewhere, um, and I know he, he he got criticized by some of his teammates in San Diego because of the video work he was doing because he would go up between at bats and and guys were like he needs to be in the dugout cheering on his teammates but he wanted to go up and look at his last at bat if he could see how they pitched him you know see what he looked like in the box I, he probably more in that at that point he was probably studying the pitcher's tendencies, how he was trying to get him out. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, he just, you know, so some guys are just so far ahead of the game mentally just in terms of their approach and, and uh, their understanding of what, what other people are trying to do to them. Greg Maddox comes to mind that way too, right? They're just yeah. uh, like savants almost. Um, their, their instincts and their, their baseball smarts are so high. Um, and, and Gwynn was, was that way. One, one more from that Padres team. A young Gary Sheffield. That was the comp we all heard about Javier Baez when he was coming up. Look at that. Look at that. The crazy bat speed. And look at how hard. Did, did that make sense to you? Does it make sense to you now to think about that as a comp or no? Yeah, in terms of the bat speed, you know, yeah. different, different, different kinds of players. Um, but, yeah, Sheffield had the, you know, that little waggle, and it just would explode to the zone. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers. And I'm thinking Sheffield was probably – a little more disciplined in his, his yeah. approach uh, than than Javi has been. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Sheffield. The, the year I was there, it was uh, Tony Fernandez, Sheffield, Gwynn, and McGriff. 
at the top of the batting order, and they were really good. Um, until the second half, they kind of tanked. Yeah, uh, outrageous. The um, Javier Baez he three doubles yesterday, and that was that was nice to see, including that last one when he just he, he's he's a crazy man trying to get to second there as the <laughs> as the tying run in the ninth inning. But he gets there, and it, and and you don't want to take that away from him because he gets stuff done like that. But before yesterday. I, and I don't know how many chances he had to not swing at high fastballs, but before yesterday, everything was like high heat. He just he could not stop himself. Is that just is that just because that's incredibly difficult to believe it's not in your zone, or, or what is that when when Javi can't stop himself? Yeah, there's an art to it from the pitcher's point of view. You know, there's a there's a height of an elevated fastball where it's very hittable, and there's a height where it's very easy to lay off, and then there's that kind of one top of the zone, a little bit above it. Um, that it just looks so tantalizing when it comes out of the pitcher's hand, especially if you're a swing guy like Javi. You know, he's looking to go up there and do damage. Mm. So, you know, he sees that it looks good, but it's very difficult to to square it up. Um, you know, in many instances, the hope is the guy just fouls it back and keeps the at-bat alive. Uh, the frustrating thing for the, the, the Javi game two games ago, he punched out twice chasing that pitch, and then his third at-bat, he finally was able to lay off of it, and he got rung up. On a you know a pitch that normally wouldn't be called. I think I think it showed the, you know in our graphic I think it was on the top of the the grid. So um, hmm. book wise maybe a strike, but one that's rarely called. And I felt so bad for him because he finally said, "Okay, man, I'm not going to chase." He didn't, and he gets rung up. Hmm. Um, but he's he's going to see a lot of that because he's handling breaking stuff. You know, when he first came up, I think the book on him was spin it, sliders off the plate. He's going to chase, chase, chase. Now he's reaching out and he's hitting that pitch, or he's not chasing it as much. And uh, the he's seeing a lot more fastballs up out of the zone, so that's going to be the next adjustment for him to try to lay off of that pitch as much as possible. He's Jim Deshays. We'll do one more segment when we come back on six seventy the score, and we'll talk about the end of yesterday's game. Javier Baez as pass protector as he tried to keep the big nose tackle Kyle Schwarber from going after the quarterback slash umpire there at the, at the end of the game, and uh, some of the other stuff to discuss from yesterday as the Cubs game is canceled today. If you have not heard, it is officially banged. Nick Shepkowski and Mark Grody will host after me at noon, but you're in the middle of hit and run on six seventy the score. Well, here is Gary. Sheffield, and he goes after the first offering and drives it deep left field, and Gary Sheffield has his 20th home run this year. Ever noticed that a hanging breaking ball, when it's hit, seems to go about 100 feet further than a home run hit off a fastball? Yeah, you ever noticed? Little Andy Rooney there. The guy doing the call for the Giants, or the Padres broadcast at the time. It's a home run from 92, Gary Sheffield teammates of Jim Deshays. I could sit around and talk uh, with Jim Deshays about his uh, his old teammates for hours and hours. Yeah, try to get Kirby Puckett stories out of him or Dave Winfield. But I'll, I'll ask you this. What was it like to pitch to Craig Biggio before he gave up before he gave up catching and, and realized, you know what? I might be a little too good to just batter my body away down there with the tools of ignorance and became a second baseman. Was he any good as a catcher? Biz, yeah, he was... Um... He's such a good athlete. Um, so his strengths were his athleticism behind the plate. Uh, real quick, jumping out on on bunts, uh, blocking balls, things of that nature. Uh, tough-minded kid. You know, you could beat him up, and he was going to come back and play every day. I mm. mean, he he, he was he, he didn't throw very well. Um, so that coupled with the fact that he was going to be such a good offensive player, uh, I think um, they decided to, to make the move. Um, you know, they so they moved him to second base, um, and there was. Points later in his career, uh, where they played him in the outfield, and I remember talking to 
to Magdalani about it, who's a longtime coach down there, and, and Maddie said, you know, Biz is our best second baseman. He's probably our best center fielder. You know, he's just a, a really good athlete. He's a heck of a running back when he was in high school. Hmm. Um, but catching probably would have, you know, cost him his legs a little bit, and running was was a big part of his game. So I, obviously, they they made the right move. It, it panned out. Yeah, I, th- I think they, they they probably probably knew what they were doing. <laughs> um, Kyle Schwarber played a little football, um, but uh, and and Javier Baez had to hold him back yesterday after the after the strikeout. That did not look like a swing to me. I don't. It's it's a judgment call in the moment, though, right? It's a tough one. Yeah, it's a, it's you know it, it, he's so strong and so quick, and that's one of the things that when he first came up, we, we heard about his ability to check his swing, he, pitch recognition, and his ability to, to start a swing and then hold off. Uh, that's a really tough call for the umpire. I've looked at it multiple times now. It doesn't look like much, but there's a little you know the bat head comes forward a little bit, and so. I joked half half uh, joked a couple of years ago that that the check swing should be like a, a possession arrow in basketball. That you know, <laughs> the, the, the umpire should have three choices: like safe call, he didn't swing, ring him up, or shrug, shrug of the shoulders. Like I don't know, man. And then it, it's a possession arrow call, and whoever has a possession arrow, it goes their way, or or, or make it a do over. Right? It's yeah. not a strike. It's not a ball. It's just just play on. So, uh, just an unfortunate way uh, for the game to end. And I think what really got uh, Schwarber's dander was when he first kind of yelled at Morales. Morales kind of gave him this dismissive wave, like, mm. you know, I don't want to hear it, which, I, I, you know, I, if I were Kyle, I probably would have gone off at that point, too. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll, raise, it'll raise the ire to be treated like that. And he'd struck out the inning prior, and Contreras had just struck out with a second and third and one down. That was... That was that was quite a moment there that they uh, could have come back and done something. But the issue was the bullpen. Issue was the seven walks, and as we talked about Hendricks um, towards the beginning of the game. Let's squeeze in a call for Jim Deshays. Clue is in Elgin and wants to talk to JD on six seventy. The score. When you host Jim, we take calls for you. This is how oh, this works. Thank you. This All is right. how it works. Hi, JD. Yeah, listen, I uh, I have the dream of losing my mail truck at the end of the night. So after a recurring dream, so I, I don't blame you about losing your spikes. <laughs> so uh, and I had a brisket skillet lined up for both you guys. We'll have to do that another time. Oh so. uh, yeah, smoke daddy. Thank you. We'll we'll be back there. That's for sure. All right. So my question, JD, is uh, it seems to me that there's a reduced um, uh, time spent with Mike Barzello. You know, in terms of seeing him in the dugout, he used to be on the top step with Joe. And I don't know if that's because Loretta's there or Tommy Hadovy's up and watching what's going on. Um, this whole nonsense, I, I call it nonsense, but the pitch count, the length, you know, the exit velocity, um, times through the order, all that stuff, has got to, it may drive you crazy as a pitcher, but to me it seems like let a veteran pitcher go, and I think the five guys that start for the Cubs are veterans. So I was just curious what your opinion was. Uh, I, I, think, I think you just have to be willing as a manager to look beyond things like pitch count and third time through the order. The, the numbers all suggest uh, pretty strongly that it's a, it's a dangerous time for just about every pitcher in the game. Third time through the batting order, uh, once you get up to 90, 100 pitches, the batting average against goes up. The power numbers spike against you know, all pitchers across the game. It's pretty much universal. Um, so I think you have to be ready to react and get your bullpen ready um, and then there's two mitigating factors. One, how much confidence do you have in the bullpen? And two, what does your starter look like on that given day? So if if I've got any one of the Cubs starters out there, they're all accomplished guys with good resumes. If they're in charge of their game, everything's coming out of their hand nicely, they have really good command, then I'm going to disregard some of those stats that tell me this is a, a, a dangerous time and I, I need to be ready to, to yank him. 
Um, but but I you know I think pitch count third time through the order, um, quality of contact against a pitcher. You know as you watch a game go on, all of a sudden you see a guy. He might be pitching a low run game, but here's a deep fly ball to the track. Here's a line drive. You know that the left fielder runs down in the alley. Those are all warning signs where you know he may be losing his edge a little bit, and hitters might be starting to time him up a little bit. And you've got to be be ready to react. So I agree with you on one level um, that that you know sometimes you you have to trust your guys and let them go a little bit longer. But I do believe in the numbers. Jim Deshays, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for doing it. Sorry we didn't get to look lovingly into each other's eyes as we talked baseball, but uh, uh, another time perhaps. And uh, thanks for the time. Travel safe today. Um, I do you know by the way that you hold a major league record? Do you know the major league record that you hold? Oh, I've got multiples, pal. Oh, let me back off. Well, do you tell you tell me a couple? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> multiples. I have. Uh... Uh, probably the most esteemed record I have is uh, uh, most at-bats without an extra base hit. That's the one. 400, yeah. 440 yeah. at-bats in yeah. the career of Jim Deshays with no extra base hits. Yeah. That's Congrats. Yeah, and I like to think I, I, may have, I may have set a record for most pickoff attempts in a, in a single game up at Olympic Stadium uh, <laughs> many years ago when they used, to, they used to put a chicken on the video board every time you threw over there. So despite them, I just kept throwing over there and they kept hanging chickens. <laughs> that was a Tim Raines, Tim Raines, Al Oliver exposed uh, It could have been anybody. Yeah. I just didn't want it might have been more about the hitter, and I didn't want to throw it to the hitter. So uh-huh. I said, if I throw it to first, nobody's going to hit it. If I throw it home, I might end up backing up third base. I, I like the idea of you baiting the video operator. You know, keep keep putting up a chicken. Yeah, Go hey, ahead. I'm French Canadian. I've got license to do things up there. <laughs> there you are, Jim. Thanks, man. What a pleasure. Appreciate yeah, it's been you. fun, Matt. We'll uh, do it again. All right, thank you. That's Jim Deshays, the uh, Cubs analyst on uh, television um, for the Cubs games with our pal Len Casper. Cubs game has been postponed. Um, there is no make update, but I have an update on the secondary market inefficiency that has been discovered, folks. And maybe you know it. It's just, it's news to me, and it's beautiful. We'll come back and continue hitting run on 670 The Score. Scott Miller from Bleacher Report joins us in the middle of the next hour as well.